the gospel lesson is written in the 15th chapter of John, beginning at the fourth verse. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch, and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And now we rejoice in the message of Martin Luther brought to us today by Johann Hinderley. It is truly a privilege for me, a man over 500 years old, to come to a place with so many people younger than I am. So I want to say, first of all, thanks be to God that he made it possible for me to come down and to share with you this day how my belief is based on this book, the Bible, as is truly your faith based on the same assurance of God's word. This day, however, we could only provide a portion of the message which shaped the Reformation. If your interest is in something greater, if you'd like to hear about the Diet of Worms, where I made the famous statement, here I stand, I can do no other. If you would like to hear about my wife Katie's escape from the convent and all of the challenges she faced, including eventually getting engaged to me and getting married and having to be my wife in our house, then perhaps you would like to come later today at 6 o'clock to this same place where Katie will be present and I also will return. And some of what you will hear this morning I will share then. But it is an opportunity not only for you, but to invite friends whom you know who need to receive the help that only God can give through the power of his Holy Spirit as we come into the presence of him 
through the word and his son, Jesus Christ. So let us pray for an opportunity for you to invite a friend tonight who might not come to church with you, but they might want to hear this story from an old, old man. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this day that you have made it possible for all of us to gather in this place to receive from you through your word and your Son, Jesus Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, a new beginning for our lives. Bless us, we pray, Lord, as we worship you, that our lives may be shaped according to your will and good pleasure. Amen. We are all born, as the text says, as children of wrath. We are truly controlled by a need to prove ourselves worthy to others. And this is the characteristic of the flesh. The flesh always wants to prove its value in the world. And this was what you have to understand was at stake in the Reformation. For at this time, the church had created an identity of holy people who were called saints. And their identity and value was something that those of us poor sinners could never hope to achieve. But perhaps we could gain some favor or benefit from them. In fact, a collection of relics had developed in our time which were used by people to give them some consolation. Uh, Peter, for example, uh, we had some of his hair uh, not far from where I lived. And if you could go to that place and look at his hair, you could worship St. Peter's holy hair. Or Katie, when she was a nun in the Nimshin convent, uh, they had some vials of St. Paul's blood. How it survives all these years, only God knows. But if you went to Katie's convent, you could worship some holy blood. And then in Saxony, uh, there was wood, uh, enough wood from the cross, uh, perhaps to create three of them. Uh, but in this case, if you would go to those places and see those relics, you could worship holy wood. I am quite certain that if there were an entrepreneurial German who could possibly make it happen, he would have found one of those 153 fish uh, that you remember were caught on the day when the Lord met the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. And that would be somewhere in Germany, and people could go and worship holy mackerel. <laughs> so you can see the absurdity of this kind of thinking. And yet, it was so common because by nature, in our flesh, as children of wrath, we want to prove ourselves worthy. And everything is based on our behavior. People look at what you do with your life. Are you a good boy or a bad boy? And the consequences are that you will be treated well or poorly. And this is why when I was being raised in this mindset, it was so difficult for me to believe in this book, the Bible, 
for all of these other elements were so popular and so common for people to trust. And so God had to open my eyes to see the truth of his word so that instead of my behavior, it was this book, the Bible, that began to determine my identity with God. And that is, of course, what you want as well. For our life is not determined by how well we perform, but rather how we trust the promises of God. This morning, you will come forward to receive the sacrament of Holy Communion, not based on how good you are, but based rather on how good God is to you, that he gives himself to you completely and freely for the cleansing of your soul and the forgiveness of your sins. This is what's promised in this book. And that is why this book is so vital to our life, our understanding of God, and truly our faith. But to come to this book, we must die to the temptation to try to measure ourselves against others. And this is what Paul describes in his letter to the church at Ephesus as boasting. You start comparing yourselves to other people. You say, well, I go to church every Sunday, and she doesn't. Well, I give a certain amount of my money, and he doesn't give anything. You become a person who inside is measuring your behavior against one another. And in this way, we fall back into sin, and we lose the gift of Christ, which he spoke of to his disciples in the reading from John, where he says, a new commandment I give you, not to compare yourselves to one another, but to love one another. How? As I have loved you. So get rid of any commandment you're living by and live by that word from Christ. For this is his commandment, love others as I have loved you. That is the commandment Jesus received from his father, and it is the one he hands on to us. The problem in Germany when I lived is that the church had misunderstood even that commandment. It had taken as an understanding of the word repentance to mean do penance. In other words, if you do something wrong, then you must prove how sorry you are for your sins. In this regard, uh, let us say that you, you said something mean to your sister or brother, or perhaps a co-worker, and you knew uh, you were guilty for this. Then you had to find some way to console yourself. And it might be fine to do it once, but when you keep doing it, you become troubled. And so the church created what is called an indulgence. It was an indulgence that made it possible for you to do some task that was very painful and miserable, and the outcome of this is you felt some consolation for your guilt. And that is why the church then created this strange thing that we had in Wittenberg, where a man from Rome came up and he was selling indulgences 
for the same reason, to give peace to your soul. You would throw some coins into this box for the purpose of helping you with your guilt or to help someone who was suffering in purgatory. As he used to sing, when the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. <laughs> there is no purgatory. <laughs> so they were only taking money and bringing it down to pay for their building projects in Rome or for the debts of one of our leading poor, not popes, but our leading bishops. In this regard, I posted the 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg because repentance does not mean do penance. Uh, Christ did not have to die for you to feel sorry for your sins in that way. All you need is a good German mother. <laughs> now show me you're really sorry. Tell your sister you didn't mean it. And then, of course, your sister will look at her mother and say, he's not meaning mother. And that's why indulgences were so popular, because Mother Church was just like the mother at home and created all these rules. And so I wanted people to know that repentance is not about something we do. It is what God does in us. He creates a new heart in us through the preaching of Christ and the gospel. For the word truly means to have a change of heart, uh, or literally to have a second thought. And so I posted those theses so we could discuss these things. Well, they were quickly translated and spread throughout the land. And even a very dumb German doesn't take too much to realize that the church was raising money at the expense of his guilt. And soon the money stopped going into that box. <laughs> and that's when the church came after me. <laughs> And so you understand that at the time of the Reformation, it wasn't only about theology, it was also about economics and how the church was raising money to pay its bills. But this is why we had to have a Reformation, because the church was confused in its understanding of how God works in our lives and was making the common person like you and me feel that we had to do something, something for God. Well, this was how I was raised, in fact. My, my father brought me to church when I was a young boy, which I am thankful he did. And the purpose of bringing me there was to hopefully help me to understand God. Uh, but sadly, the opposite took place. For I became quite restless during worship. It was in Latin. There were no comfortable places to sit, as you have here. And so I began to show some restlessness. And he became concerned. I don't think for my salvation. It was more for his reputation. But he came up with a plan to try to control my behavior. And he called his plan the stick-to-it plan. Yes. <laughs> This was the secret of his plan. Whenever I didn't stick to his plan, he would stick it to me. Oh, the pain of disappointing him I carried with me throughout the day. So as a consequence, I would stand quite still during worship, hoping to impress him with, again, my behavior. As I grew older, he realized threatening me at one end wasn't enough. 
So he reminded me how sometimes we had to put a carrot on the end of a stick to get an animal to go into the barn. I said, well, I'm not interested in carrots, and I'm not an animal. What does that have to do with me? He said, I know, but you do like your mother's cakes and candies, and if you're good during worship, you will be rewarded when you get home. Oh, now I knew it was on the end of the stick for me. (laughs) When I was standing there in worship, I was beaming so greatly, I think the pastor thought he was getting through to me. The only thing getting through to me was my mother's cooking. But by this means, my father could control my behavior, either with a threat of punishment or the lust for reward. And I came to think that God, like my father, also uses a stick to manipulate us. After all, what is hell? That dreadful place you have to go to when you die, where the lake of fire and they make you go swimming and you don't like to swim, and there's no air conditioning. Oh, how miserable that would be. Why, what wouldn't you do to avoid such a consequence? Why, you might come on Wednesday night to have an Oktoberfest meal if you thought that might spare you from the perils of hell. And then, of course, there was heaven, heaven. Oh, and we were told in heaven the streets are paved with gold. Why, some of you people in New Mexico probably would be happy with streets paved with anything. But gold, something we regard so precious on earth, is simply a cobblestone in glory. But by this means, I could see that God, like my father, uses a stick to threaten us with hell or reward us with heaven. And this was how I understand God. It was all about what I had to do for him. I was studying law at the university, and I was going back to my studies On a terrible stormy night, the skies were black, there were bolts of lightning and thunder all around. Then one hit right near me. I fell to my knees. I prayed to St. Anne, St. Anne, have mercy on me. I'll become a monk. No point in praying to God. He just missed me once with that bolt of lightning. Why give God a chance to re-aim and reload? So I entered the monastery. I became a monk. If a person could be saved by monkery, it would be Martin Luther. I would do whatever I could to make myself miserable for God's sake. I would beat myself. I would go without food and even went on pilgrimages to miserable destinations. But I think some of you Lutherans have taken this one step further. You've said to yourselves, if I can gain a heavenly reward by being miserable on earth, then I am being very selfish to keep this all to myself. Why not get married? Yes, make someone else as miserable as you are. And if that's not enough, you can always have children and make their lives miserable as well. Think of that day when you enter into glory and St. Peter greets you and says, well done, good and miserable servant. This was the confusion that was in my life. I live with this anxiety and fear and doubt. I would even go to my confessor, Staupitz. I would confess my sins to him for sometimes two or three hours. I wanted to make sure I didn't miss anything I had done wrong. One day, Staupitz, he yawned and he said, Brother Martin, these confessional times are so boring. Why don't you go commit some interesting sins? Don't you wish Pastor Carol would have an interesting sin Sunday? (laughs) Yes, that's one you could invite your friends to. (laughs) The homework is wonderful this week. You have to come to church. (laughs) 
Well, I was plagued with this part of me that was so filled with sin. And I knew that all of my efforts to please God were shaped by fear and not by faith. And so all my habits and the monastery and everything I did was grounded in this anxiety that was so deep in me. The Bible became more and more important to me, especially Paul's letter to the church at Rome, where he describes his own battle with this sinful self. And he says when he looks at himself inside, he sees two St. Pauls. One is not so holy, the other one is. For the St. Paul who is a slave to sin, that is his flesh. And the one who is free in Christ, that's the true Paul. And this battle, oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I had not used to having living flowers around me like that. St. <laughs> Paul said that this is the characteristic of our life. We keep knocking over things we didn't know about. And then we wonder, what do I have to do to make up for it? But you can't do anything about this. You will always be a sinful person. All your life, your flesh will be a slave to sin. And it will come up against you at times you wish it wouldn't, especially as you get older and you're less able to edit your voice. But the fact is, is that that is not the true you. The true you is that person within and this is why I came to realize that we are a sinner and a saint at the same time. And this reality started to come to light for me as I was studying and reading and teaching these words. Uh, then one day, uh, when I went to my friend Staupitz, he shook me. He said, Luther, you spend so much time meditating on how miserable you are. Why don't you instead meditate on Christ and on his cross? See how he became miserable for your sake. That day, everything changed for me. I went up into my bedroom, and I read again in the Bible how we are made right with God. Not by my monkish habits, not by your coming to church or giving money or doing good things. We are made right with God by what he did for us on the cross. His blood shed for you and for me cleanses us from our sin. It wipes away everything held against us. We receive his righteousness as a gift. Or, again, I read the text from Ephesians that was read for us this morning, where it describes there that we are saved by grace and it's not our own doing. It's a gift of God. All of these things were happening that night in my room. The room was filled with light, not like that bolt of lightning. This was a light from above where my whole being was filled. It was as if I were born again and I saw for the first time that God does carry a stick. But this is the stick which God carries. And who suffered on account of this stick? It wasn't you and it wasn't Martin Luther. God suffered on this stick. God on this stick became what you are, sin. He became all your divisiveness. He became all your bitterness. He became all your resentment on this stick. And what does he give you in exchange? God gives you his grace, his forgiveness, his love because of this stick. God literally sticks it to himself on this stick 
for your sake and mine. That night in my room, I saw for the first time that when God looked at Martin Luther, he saw someone he loved as much as Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Do you believe when God looks at you, he sees someone he loves as much as Jesus? Do you believe that in God's eyes, you are as pure and holy, innocent and righteous as Jesus Christ? If you believe this, then you believe the gospel. For that is the good news. The good news of this stick is that Christ has become what you are. And you are free to be what he is in the world as the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so I love you. Love one another as I have loved you. When you are free in Christ, you are free to love. But if you are beating yourself up with something you've done in your past, or perhaps didn't do, a failure as a parent in a working situation, in a marriage, and you keep punishing yourself, say, oh, I was so bad, then you're not free to love. So I invite you this morning as you come forward to receive the blessed sacrament, to lay your guilt down at the altar and take up this stick and follow Jesus. Or it may be that someone caused you pain in your past. Someone said something to you, hurt you, caused you to lose a job, a marriage relationship. Maybe it's your child who won't speak to you, whatever it is. And you were hurt when they stuck it to you. And you keep nursing that stick. You say, oh, you don't know what I've been through. I've had such pain and trouble. No one knows what I've... You're nursing a stick of your resentment. Again, today, lay that stick down and take up this stick and follow Christ. For what did Christ say to us from the cross? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Christ understands your guilt and your resentment. And today he invites you as a part of this Reformation life to leave that at the communion table and to go forward into the world free. For if Christ has set you free, you are free indeed. And you are forgiven for Christ's sake. Nothing is held against you. You are free in him to love as you've been loved. So leave it here this morning. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you sent your only begotten son, Jesus, to take upon himself our guilt. If we've been beating ourselves up over things we did or didn't do, Father, this morning may we remember his word where he says, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Help us to lay down our guilt and to know we're forgiven for Jesus' sake. Or if we've been bearing some pain from another, a resentment, a feeling of anger for what someone did to us, help us to remember the words of your son on the cross when he prayed to you, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And may we even now, if there is someone, even this past week, who has caused us pain and we have some spite in our spirit against them, may we pray as Christ did. Father, forgive. And now name that person. Father, forgive. For that person did not know what they were doing. We pray all these things in the name 
of your precious Son, our Savior and Lord. Amen.